So this is the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Usually have a much longer text, so that was a good short one, wasn't it? All right, this goes here, sorry. Right-handed and type A. Well, this, uh, this past week was the, uh, the most uh, wonderful day of the year, Valentine's Day, and um, it's not, but uh, Valentine's Day, the day of love, and uh, uh, we spent, uh, Michelle and I spent that day together uh, at our missional community that evening, and so we spent time with our brothers and sisters in the Lord, uh, having a time to be with them and share the love of Jesus together, so that was, that was how we celebrated Valentine's Day. But uh, if there's been a theme that has kind of kept recurring throughout this letter as we've studied it together, uh, surely it is the theme of love. What, what, what does love look like within the context of a local church? Uh, we've acknowledged that the word love is uh, one of those words that's really thrown around uh, in our culture today. Uh, and when it's used most of the time, it's used not in the same way that we use the word love as Christians. It's certainly not what the Bible describes as, you know, biblical love or self-giving love. Uh, the world tends to see love as sort of a, a sappy emotion, uh, you know, a sentimental, romantic feeling that comes and goes and leaves just as quickly as it comes. And, and the world is obsessed with that kind of what we might say, love. Uh, Jen Wilkin, in her book, In His Image, uh, there she talks about the, the culture's obsession with this type of love. I'm putting quotes around it, romantic love. And she, she poses this question. She says, do you know what is the top grossing romantic drama of all time? Raking in almost $700 million, it's a little tale about two characters named Jack and Rose, whose four-day love story plays out in the unfortunate venue of a doomed cruise ship. Wilkin goes on, perhaps you've heard of it, Wilkin goes on to compare that love story with a real-life love story uh, between another Jack and his wife, Lucille. In 2016, the, uh, Jack and Lucille celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary, 75 75 years together, married, and the story made the local news in Dallas. And when a reporter asked uh, the couple, what, what does it take? Tell us what it takes to stay married for so long. Uh, Lucille said, well, first of all, it takes a very deep friendship. And, and then she kind of summarized what she said, and she said, you know, you, you just have to give a little. And so Jack interrupted and with a big grin on his face said, no, you, you have to give a lot. Wilkin concludes by, by pointing out that the elderly couple's story is one that isn't very riveting. 
other than the fact that it's 75 years and going. And it's a, mo- and it's a story that will never be told in a movie. It, it's the tempestuous sort of romantic love that sells movie tickets. But the, the four-day love story of Jack and Rose isn't really love. Love, biblical love, the kind that Paul has been describing in this letter, is similar to Jack and Lucille's love. It's steady, it's selfless, and it endures the test of time. So Paul returns to this theme of love in his last chapter of his letter. And here we might say that he, he summarizes his letter. And he does it in a key verse. I, I, think it's, I think it's this one verse, verse 14, that summarizes this whole letter. He says, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, as was common in uh, the first century in Greco-Roman culture, uh, Paul wraps up his letter with, as I said, a hodgepodge of sort of seemingly random exhortations. But I want us to see that these are not random. They are the outworking of verse 14. One could say that they're the therefore to everything that has proceeded and everything that will follow. And so for the next three weeks, we'll end this series applying what Paul has taught us and specifically, we'll look at some practical ways that love works itself out among the people of God. And if you're of the note-taking kind, I'll title each sermon with therefore along with an action word that describes love. And today, as you might have guessed, Paul is answering a question that the Corinthians asked him Uh, concerning uh, a monetary or financial collection that he's taking up for the church in Jerusalem. There in verse 1, he says, now concerning, that's a a phrase we have seen in this letter Paul uses when he's uh, responding to something they asked already in a letter. Paul's responding here to that. And uh, as I I approach this text this week, I've been thinking back over the past year or so, and we've talked quite a lot about this. We've, we've, we've talked about how our, our, wallets, our wallets and love are very much so connected, you know. The way that we use what God gives us is a real proof positive of, of our love. And I, I'm just going to start by getting the awkwardness out of the way. I wanted to be real honest with you. I did not want to preach this sermon. I, I, I guess I could, I'm tired of talking about money. We talk about it a lot because we started a capital campaign recently. And, and on top of that, my church family is very generous when it comes to giving. So it just seems kind of redundant. And I, I, if you're visiting today, I, if you came last week or next week, it would be totally different. But, but this week, you're here to hear about this subject of generous giving as an outworking of our love. And our arrival here must mean that the Lord has something more to say to us on the subject. Christian love means giving a little. No, it means giving a lot. Not just of our money, but of our lives. So today the title is, Therefore, Love Gives. Love Gives. In these four short verses, Paul addresses first uh, the matter of giving in verse 1. He's then going to go on to describe the method for giving in verse 2. And then finally, we'll hear what his motive is for giving in the final few verses. So let's begin this together, starting in verse 1, the matter of giving. 
the matter of giving. We see here that Paul refers to this so-called uh, collection for the saints. Now, notice that he gives very little information here uh, on this subject. He doesn't describe what he's talking about. He doesn't take the time to, to, to go into deep paragraphs about this collection. In fact, we're going to have to wait, wait till later letters that he will write, Romans and 2 Corinthians, to really learn more about what this collection is. But, but clearly, this was something that the church in Corinth was familiar with. Perhaps he talked about this in a previous letter. Uh, maybe he talked at length about this collection during his first visit of 18 months there, some five years before this. But if we study those letters, Romans and 2 Corinthians, we learn that this collection is for the church in Jerusalem, which, of course, he refers to by name in verse 3. And so the question arises, what exactly, why exactly, you might say, was Paul raising money for the church in Jerusalem? What is he raising money for? Why is he raising money? Well, just a quick glance at Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 9, even 1 Thessalonians 2, reveals that in Jerusalem was a group of Christians that were in very great need. The church in Jerusalem began, of course, on the day of Pentecost, some 20 to 25 years prior to the writing of this letter. And Acts tells us that the new converts there took good care of each other. Acts chapter 2 tells us that the believers there happily sold their belongings and distributed the proceeds to each one as they had need. But if you read 1 Thessalonians, which was Paul's first letter that he wrote, he indicates in chapter 2.14 that the, 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 the Jewish Christian population in Jerusalem and in Judea had begun to suffer heavy persecution from the Jews as time went on. And so naturally, whenever persecution comes, believers tend to suffer financially. Persecution often entails the loss of jobs, the loss of a place in society. So there were evidently quite a few poor people in Jerusalem and in the greater Judean area. And in a time where social welfare systems just didn't exist, not having a job, poverty wasn't merely an inconvenience. It was a death sentence. And so Paul is on a mission of mercy for the Judean saints. He's He's collecting funds to, to help them in their hour of need, as we can see here. And in other churches as well, he's petitioned the churches in Galatia already. He's been petitioning other churches to help out. But friends, there's perhaps a more important need that Paul is addressing in this matter of giving. If you look in verse 1, that word for collection there is translated simply contribution. But in verse 3, the word that he uses for gift is the usual word that we use for grace. So as we'll see shortly, this collection is meant to be a gift of gracious generosity from a church that's mainly Gentile on behalf of Christians in Jerusalem that are mainly Jewish at a time when Jews and Gentiles didn't get along so well. But you see, friends, it's from the Jews, Paul will highlight to the Romans, that salvation springs. 
And in fact, in Romans 15, after the Corinthians had given their gift in the future, Paul will write to the church in Rome, Romans 15, 26 and following, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. You see, friends, a typical Greek man or woman in the first century did not give because they felt sympathy or gratitude. Greeks gave to the needs of others in order to receive honor and love from people of lower status. So if you gave to a needy person, that person was indebted to you. Greeks gave so that they could get in return. I couldn't help but think, is that not the same in our culture? Not because we're looking for tax breaks. I think for most of us, the standard deduction is helpful enough, but we're looking for backpats most of the time. Similar to us in the Greek culture. But friends, what a, what a message it would be. What a message it would be to a watching world if the predominantly Greek church in Greece gave of their finances not for selfish return, but out of love for their Jewish brothers and sisters. The same love that Jesus showed them when they were at their worst. Friends, what's, what's Paul doing? Paul is cementing the unity of brothers and sisters across different cultures. By their generosity, the Greek church in Corinth has the opportunity to share in the Jewish church's suffering, which Paul will say in his next letter to the Corinthians, would overflow in many thanksgivings to God. You see, friends, in studying this little section here, we have the disadvantage of being modern American Christians, not least because we're the richest society in the world. I think amongst Christians in the United States, there is by and large an accepted mindset, even among non-Christians, an accepted mindset among churchgoers in the U.S. that giving financially to one's churches is just what you do. You just do that. Of course, this is a biblical truth. Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 6, 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So there's a biblical precedent for making regular financial contributions to the local church because the leadership is sustained by those contributions, but also the leadership manages those contributions to meet the needs of the, the mission of that local church. But Paul's not talking about a regular offering here. He's not talking about the, uh, the well-established tithe that we have for some reason carried over into the New Testament, which it's not, by the way. Paul's talking about an additional collection taken up in a time of need. For brothers and sisters, the Corinthians would probably never, ever meet. In other words, Paul wants the churches under his care to think. He wants the churches under his care to think about how they use their extra funds that aren't reserved for the Sunday offering plate. He's talking about the remaining 90 to 95 or 90% or 80% of their increase. Paul says, whatever the amount in a unique way that your regular offering does not, this gift of generosity says 
to people in need, I see you. I'm here for you. I care about you. I love you. Brothers and sisters, do we, do we think like this about our extra? Now, just so you don't think that I'm standing up here and I've chosen this text to preach so that we can really start giving more, I'll be the first to admit that I have become so percentage-oriented in my thinking about giving from my extra that I've become almost tight-fisted with it. And I'm sure I can speak for most of us. It's not that I don't want to show love in this way to brothers and sisters who are in need to, to share in their suffering. Rather, it's that my percentage is too fixed. It's like, a, it's like the grayed-out document that we can't have access to on our computer because it's locked. Friends, listen, I, I'd much rather talk about different ways that we can love one another rather than opening up our wallets. But when we encounter texts like this in the context of a letter that has a lot to say about love, we need to face this before we move on. By the Spirit, we need to confront those grayed-out areas of our lives that we're unwilling to unlock. And like John says, stop loving in word only, but in deed and in truth. John says in 1 John 3, whoever has the world's goods and sees their brother in need but shuts up their heart from him, the love of God does not abide in him. So friends, before we keep going, what about that extra? Whatever extra yours may be. And I'll expand this and go beyond finances. Time is money. Time is money. What about the extra time that we have? Is that a grayed out part of our lives? And if so, why? Why? So this is the matter at hand, the matter of giving. Paul now lays down, number two, the method for giving in verse two. Verse 2, the method of forgiving. Now, Paul knows what he is petitioning for is above and beyond what this church normally gives. Uh, there are a lot of things, by the way, that we do regularly by habit. We brush our teeth by habit. We get dressed by habit. We comb our hair by habit, usually at the same time every day. But there are other things that we don't do regularly. For me, it's, it's washing my car, and, and it shows. Giving of ourselves is a lot like that. If, if we don't write it into our calendars, friends, it's less likely to get done. And Paul understands this. Now, we're going to deal with the heart motive shortly, but here Paul just wants to give some very practical wisdom to helping his brothers and sisters come up with a, a plan or a method for faithful generosity, which he plans on collecting and sending when he visits. So here they are. I'm going to give you three methods that Paul gives and we'll go through each of them. He says, giving should be done regularly, it should be done universally, and it should be done proportionately, okay? The first is regularly. Paul instructs this church to put something aside, see it there in verse 2, on the first day of every week. Now, why the first day? Well, for one, the first day is a Sunday. 
That's the day when uh, Christians had begun to gather every week for worship as opposed to the Jewish Sabbath, which was a Saturday. Sunday was the day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. And believers in Jerusalem began to come, to get, come together on that day for the breaking of bread and for prayers and to hear the apostles read the scriptures to them. And so Paul chooses that day likely because it is the Lord's day. It's the day that we look back or the church looks back at the resurrection. It's the day that we look forward to the day when Christ returns. And that's what the Corinthians were gathered to celebrate. That's what we gather to celebrate. Now think about this. As the church is going to worship, very likely walking to a place of worship, maybe someone's home, Paul wanted them to have their eyes open. He wanted them to look at fellow believers especially who were on the way to that gathering who did not have the means that they may have had. And he wants us to spur them on to think about other believers around the world who are are suffering. And he wants us to translate into tangible care. So by taking a little each week from their income and putting it aside and storing it, when Paul arrived there, there'd be no need to scramble to take up a collection because let's be honest, doing anything last minute often produces meager results. And so too would scrambling to try to collect a few coins for the Jerusalem saints. So Paul says your giving should be done regularly. Secondly, he says your giving should be done universally. Paul says to each of you, each of you is to put something aside. Now notice he doesn't say only those of you who who can afford it. He says each of you. Now understand, this is a big statement in first century Greece, way more than in first century United States. Likely half, at least half, of this church is either made up of slaves or freedmen who were former slaves or are of the serving class. Paul gives this exhortation to people that don't have a lot of extra cash on hand. But nevertheless, he wants each of them to share in the grace of giving. I'll give a hat tip to Pastor Aaron here. He shared with me a a story about a meeting that took place between Charles Spurgeon and the deacons at Metropolitan Tabernacle many years ago. The church there was experiencing some uh, financial difficulties, and the deacons who, who ran the finances suggested that we should all get together and we should pray about this. And so I don't know if they had begun to pray or not, but Spurgeon interrupted them, and he said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He then took out a piece of paper and a pen, and he wrote on that paper, C.H. Spurgeon, 50 pounds. And he passed that paper around so that each deacon could write down their names and how much they would contribute. And when this was done, Spurgeon said, Now, brethren, now we can conscientiously pray. Paul wants these brothers and sisters, friends, to experience The grace of giving. No matter their status, no matter their standing, whether they had much or little. And he knows how easy it is for the easier spiritual disciplines like prayer to replace, to become substitutes for the more difficult spiritual disciplines that God calls us to. 
Friends, even good intentions and personal justifications can pacify the Christian from living and loving sacrificially. And so Paul takes out a broad brush, a roller, and he includes everyone in the church universally. Members and pastors, rich and poor, generous and stingy, all. So giving should be done universally. Thirdly, giving should be done proportionately. Paul says, put something aside as he may prosper. Now that word for prosper in the original means what it means now. It means success in something. Now here, when Paul uses it, it's in the passive voice, which means it's something that they have received. It means they have been made to prosper. In other words, their excess comes from God. So it would seem that Paul is calling for the members of this church in Corinth to draw funds each week corresponding to whatever surplus these rich people or poor people may have received. This surplus might refer to unexpected income like a bonus, but it could also refer to that which is left over after expenses are met. And so even those on a fixed income were to sit down and evaluate their finances and to draw something from the remaining funds and put it aside. Again, I want to reiterate this. What Paul is calling for, this collection, is not from the usual first and best that this church would give. It's not from the first fruits of their harvest, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's not, he's not talking about the regular contribution. This is an above and beyond one from the excess that God so graciously provided for us this week or them this week. You know, loved ones, David told us in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I'll just soak that in for just a moment. The earth is the Lord's and everything, everything in it. This may be harsh reality for some, and it may be wonderful freedom for others, but everything we have belongs to the Lord. Whatever deed we have with our names on it belongs first to God. It may be our home, it may be, a, it may be our bank account, it may be, it may be our, our time, it may be our children. Everything we think we own is on rea- in reality on loan from God. And friends, therefore, it's a stewardship. It, it's, it's a trust. God is entrusting his property to us, some more than others, But God's entrusting his property to us, and he calls each of us to take care how we use what he gives to us. Friends, we aren't at liberty to waste what he gives us or to hoard what he gives us or anything in between. Do you remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25? Remember what happened to the hoarder? He thought he was being wise, but Jesus called him unfaithful. And he said, depart from me into utter darkness. The hoarder he said that to, not the lavish ones. 
So what Paul is saying here, friends, is it's very much needed practical wisdom. First, for these Corinthians who are faced with a, a real world need at a real time in history, but the matter and the method of giving is easily transferable to us who live in the richest society in the world. So the next question we ought to ask ourselves then is not how do we apply this text to a specific need before us, we'll do that at the very end, but rather, do I see my worldly goods through a biblical lens? When I look at my home and my bank account and my children and my time and everything else, do I count these things as personal treasures or as divine trust? It's one or the other. When I go to worship with the saints on Sunday, do I count the car and the clothes and the money and the people and everything around me as possession or something on loan from God? Because, friends, listen, if Psalm 24.1 is true, then even the things I gain as the result of my own blood, sweat, and tears are not really mine in the first place, but rather have been entrusted to me by the hand of a gracious father to steward them in a way that's pleasing to him. Randy Alcorn wrote a little book called The Treasured Principle. Treasure Principle. He says this there. A steward manages assets for the owner's benefit. The steward carries no sense of entitlement to the assets he manages. It's his job to find out what the owner wants done with his assets, then carry out his will. God is the owner of all things, and we are simply his stewards. Our name is on God's account. We have unrestricted access to it, a privilege that is subject to abuse. As his money managers, God trusts us to set aside our own salaries. We draw needed funds from his wealth to pay our living expenses. One of our central spiritual decisions is determining what a reasonable amount to live on. What is a reasonable amount to live on? Whatever the amount is, and it will legitimately vary from person to person, we shouldn't hoard or spend the excess. After all, it's his, not ours. And he has something to say about where we put it. Possessions or trust? This entails a mindset shift, friends. A perspective switch. John Wesley, the great preacher, was once approached by a distraught man on horseback, and he announced that, Mr. Wesley, your, your house is just burned to the ground. Wesley paused for a moment, and then he calmly replied, no, no, the Lord's house has burnt to the ground. That means one less responsibility for me. Do we have such a mindset, friends? It, it's a possession or it's a trust. And Psalm 24 says that it's actually a trust on love. That means everything is excess. Everything is entrusted to our care by God. 
May God change our mindset. So a matter of giving, a method of giving, and finally the motive for giving. Verses 3 and 4, Paul tells us how he plans on getting the Corinthians' grace gift to Jerusalem. Now notice Paul says that if the church wants him to go, he'll go, but it's not his intention for him to deliver the gift, but instead he'll choose specially chosen representatives from the Corinthian congregation to deliver it. So why is he doing that? Well, practically, Paul realizes that uh, he needs to send them with some commendation. And so Paul will write a, a special letter, an introduction of sorts, which, by the way, was very common in the first century in business dealings. And the reason you would do that is so that the people that are receiving the gift, the people that are receiving the, uh, the envoy, the convoy, rather, would receive them, you know. So he writes, says, I'll, write, I'll write a letter for you. Also, as a practical measure, of course, in the, those days, there were no bills. Uh, currency was all in coin, and so the long journey from Achaia, Greece, to Judea would require uh, protection from pack bandits, presumably, so there'd be safety in numbers. But more than anything, Paul wants something to happen in the church in Jerusalem. Paul wants the Jerusalem saints to be able to put face to gift. He wants the Gentiles, he wants them to see the Gentile Christians' faces who so willingly and sacrificially collected this gift and made such a long journey to meet their needs. You see, friends, when all is said and done, financial stewardship of God's money is a matter of love. It is. Let's be honest. The church in Corinth struggled in this area. They struggled as disciples of Jesus to love one another. And that's why Paul so frequently throughout this letter emphasizes the cross as both the stimulus for and the motive behind all that they do. And so in verse 14, when he says, let all that you do be done in love, the love that they give is not a self-conjured-up love when the feeling hits just right on Valentine's Day. It's love that's come from the outside of them. It's love that has been given to them. It's the selfless love of God toward them in the person and in the work of Jesus, the Savior. Paul's not, Paul hates sappy, sentimental, emotional, tempestuous love, gaudily displayed in a Hallmark movie, or at least he would if he was in our modern day. But in this is love, John says. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrificial propitiation for our sins. So with this practical, no-pressure purposeful approach to serving the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, a little each week from one's excess, the saints in Corinth have all the motivation they need to prove that their love for their brothers and sisters is genuine. And all they need to do is look at the cross of Jesus. All they need to do is look at Jesus. Friends, if we see our things as possessions, and not a trust. 
1 John, 2 Corinthians, these are good letters to study. They're good letters to study because they talk about a Savior who is rich, yet for His sake, for our sake, became poor so that we, through His poverty, might become rich. You know, we've just spent six weeks considering the implication of the resurrection of Christ to our lives now. And at the end of chapter 15, last week, we saw, he says, Therefore, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And all you do, bear witness to God's grace in Christ to you. Know that your labor is not in vain. And so I, maybe you don't see it this way, but to me it's comical that Paul immediately turns to application of this verse. Jesus is alive. Now concerning the collection for the saints. This is because, friends, there is indeed a link between our love for Christ and the saints and our wallets. Loved ones, God's word confronts us here. The, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. So will we, will we, whether you belong to this church or not, will we abound in bearing witness to his grace to us in the way that we manage this trust? Friends, I'll probably never have to hire a financial manager for my accounts, honey. I'm sorry about that. But as a Christian, I am most certainly a financial manager for his accounts. And if like the song that we sang, he is our greatest treasure. Did you sing that? Greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. Sing that song. Is he really that treasure? Are we really satisfied in him alone? If the answer is yes, then we have all the grace we need to steward his resources well. Of course, those of you who are members at Grace City, you've heard us talking about this collection that we're taking up for the saints, Harvest 24. Many of you have been so faithful to give to this already. It's enabled us, by the way, to care for the tangible needs of some poor or poorer family in our community. It's enabled us to care for brothers and sisters in Ukraine in a church there. It's enabled us to give life-giving service or support for Lifeline Pregnancy Resource Center to women considering abortion. We've only been doing it a few months. I'm grateful for you. The pastors are grateful for the generosity of this body. And yet there's still a great need. This building is not ours. It's not salt boxes either. I guess it's the Lord's, but we're hoping for a place of our own someday. And so we're raising money for that. We're asking God to raise up leaders in this body, missionaries from this body. We're asking him to give us help so that we can support Christians around the world who are in great need, who are, who are suffering. We want, we want to have a bond with those brothers and sisters. And we're hoping that even some missionaries might emerge as we go on our first short-term missions trip to Guadalupe, Mexico in just a couple of months. I think this is a perfect time to come to 1 Corinthians 16, even though I didn't want to preach it. It's a perfect time to come here and apply Paul's no-pressure, purposeful method of giving. Friends, following Spurgeon's example, maybe we should stop praying about it and commit to laying aside a little each week. 
so that when October 24 comes, we're not scrambling. Yeah, $300,000 is a lot of money, but it's God's money, and we're using it to do God's work. And as Hudson Taylor once said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. He is too wise a God to frustrate his purposes for lack of funds. If you feel God stirring your heart to go to Mexico, don't let money stand in the way. He is too wise a God to frustrate his purposes in your life for lack of funds. But I want to say one more thing, and then I'll stop talking, and then Aaron's going to come up here by grace, lead us in the Lord's Supper. If we come to October 24 and we don't come close to our goal, We are still like this Corinthian church, the chur- a church in the middle of a culture that lies under the sway of the wicked one. After we finish this series and move on to Jonah, we are still a church in the middle of a culture that is possessed by the God of this age. And if he could, he would plummet this world into ruin. We happen to be a church, a local church, living in darkness. And friends, I want to just make an appeal to you. The way that we use our extra, whether that be our our money or our spiritual gifts or our talents, our abilities, As we saw last week, it screams a message to that society that says, I'm not living for myself. I'm living for someone greater than me. And friends, that love is not glamorous, but it's steady, it's steadfast, it's selfless, and it endures the test of time. God, would you give us help Give us grace to apply these few short verses to our lives. We recognize the setting is different, the culture is different than our Corinthian counterparts, but Lord, the need is the same. There are people who will spend eternity without Christ all around us. And so, Lord, whether it's in the extra time that we have or the extra funds that we have, help us to see them not as possession, but as a trust given to us from the God who loved us and gave himself for us. And now as we consider this bread and this cup, Lord, would you fuel us by your selfless, self-giving love to leave from this place and abound in the grace of giving. I pray in Jesus' name.